Let's turn, if you don't mind, to Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah is a little past halfway in your Old Testaments if you have any trouble finding it. Isaiah was one of the major writing prophets, not the longest book in the Old Testament. A little Bible trivia for you today, that's Jeremiah. Jeremiah has the longest Hebrew word counts of any book in the Bible. But Isaiah has uh, a long prophecy in which he covers all kinds of material. We have worked through these past weeks in our Advent season this notion that Jesus is the joy of every longing heart. This is drawn from a well-known Christmas hymn, and we find within this short title, the tension that I mentioned to you earlier, this tension between the fulfillment of what Jesus has already accomplished and yet longing for more, the tension between the recognition that all things are not all well, and yet a longing that one day they will be. Advent is good for us. As I mentioned to you earlier, traditionally in the history of the church, Advent was very important. We've lost this in some senses because seemingly as soon as Halloween is done, we jump right into Christmas. And then for a couple of months, we try to manufacture joy and happiness, which is really difficult for us because I have never had 60 or so straight days of happiness in my entire existence. Those of you who think I'm weird, I think you're crazy. You're a lunatic. Nobody's that happy that many days in a row. Advent was designed by those who came a long time before us to help us deal with the tension, the tension between what is dark and what is light, between what is sad and what is happy. And so we come now to the fourth Sunday of Advent, and we are moving more and more toward the light, which will come in its fullness this week as we approach both Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. And so today specifically, we are going to look together into Isaiah chapter 11, where Isaiah presents for us a longing for restoration. We began our Advent series looking into Genesis 49, where Moses records for us that God is going to keep His promises of redemption to the world through a tiny insignificant tribe called Judah. We have spent the last two Sundays in Isaiah chapters 7 through 9 finding that that prophecy gets narrowed down a little bit, and God promises that despite what Israel sees, but despite what her eyes see, despite the fact that, that they are surrounded by ruin and decay, that God is going to keep the promises that He had made centuries before. That no matter what, even though humanity has failed to keep covenant with God, God will keep covenant with His people. God will fulfill all of His promises. You'll see behind you, behind me, on the screen a picture. I ran across this this week, and I think it's really meaningful for our passage today. I'm going to leave it up there, and we're going to read from Isaiah chapter 11. I'm going to talk to you you about why I chose it. Hear the word of the Lord. 
There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, Isaiah 11.1, 1, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion, the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. And that day the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. The jealousy of Ephraim shall depart, and those who harass Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah, and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. But they shall swoop down on the shoulder of the Philistines in the west, and together they shall plunder the peoples of the east. They shall put out their hand against Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites shall obey them. And the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt, and will wave His hand over the river." with his scorching breath, and strike it into seven channels, and he will lead people across in sandals. And there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of his people, as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. May God bless to us the reading of his word. You find here in verse 1, and I will read it again, this promise of a surprise. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. In Genesis 49, a few weeks ago, we learned that God would keep His promise to bring redemption to the world through one of Jacob's sons named Judah. This, in and of itself, was a surprise, for when we first find Judah, in the book of Genesis, he is a pretty wicked person. He commits adultery with his widowed daughter-in-law. He turns from God repeatedly in other ways. There is a sign of redemption in Judah's story, for eventually he is willing to 
give up his own rights for the good of others by the end of the story. And when Jacob blesses his sons, you would think that he would bless Joseph with the lion's share of blessing, but in a sense, he gives that to Judah, which is a great surprise, and it shows that grace and mercy shine in the darkness, that God even uses the sin of mankind to bring about His kind and gracious purposes. That prophecy gets narrowed down as you come to the person of David, for David is of the tribe of Judah. God promises David that kings will not depart from his line. As you come to the prophecy of Isaiah, that gets narrowed down even a bit more. For as we've been discussing over the past couple of weeks, a child will come from David's line, but he will not be a normal child. He will be a divine child. As we saw back in Isaiah chapters 7 and 8, he will have a title, which is Emmanuel, which means God with us. And as we saw last week, he will not only be the suffering servant of God who will lay his life down for his people, he will be a glorious king. He will be, in fact, the mighty God, a wonderful counselor, the everlasting father, the prince of peace, and of the increase of his government, there will be no end. And as we celebrate together at Advent season, we hold these two truths in tension. That the Lord Jesus Christ, who came and laid His life down for us and conquered sin and death through His resurrection, has begun to make all things new. But we do not yet live in a world where such rule, characterized by righteousness, by perfect counsel, and the very literal presence of God is perfectly experienced. Jesus has come to initiate salvation in His first advent, and yet we, we long for the consummation of His second advent. In Isaiah's day, it is as though the promises made to Judah and specifically to David's line were like a giant tree that had been lopped off. Have you ever been hiking in a forest somewhere where there are old growth trees and you find that a tree has just fallen down and you see its giant root system and you look at it and there, there's nothing green to be found other than the parasitical moss that's growing on it. It's sad. This is what David's line was like. The king of Isaiah's day in the southern kingdom of Judah was Ahaz. As we talked about a couple of weeks ago, Ahaz was anything but a king faithful to God. He had turned to pagan religion. He had sacrificed in fire one of his own sons to appease a false god. He had brought pagan worship into Jerusalem itself. And he had made foreign alliances with evil kings. This was the state of of God's covenant people, they who were to be the light in the midst of a dark world. It looked like a giant tree which once held promise had fallen over and the whole thing had come to ruin and decay. And as Isaiah prophesied in our passage from last week, 
in chapter 9 that there is coming this one, this child, this Emmanuel, who will bring renewal to the entirety of the earth. If you are a Jewish person in the 8th century B.C., you might look at Isaiah and say, no, he won't. The whole thing is ruined. And Isaiah says to us here in Isaiah 11.1 that if you take a close look at the tree, the tree that seems to be marked by ruin and decay and total loss, you will see a sprig of life coming out of it. A promise that in the midst of human failure, of rebellion against God, despite the fact that He has shown His covenant people promise after promise, century after century, that despite all of this human failure, that God will bring His promises to pass. And this was Isaiah's word for these ancient Jewish people that despite what their eyes saw, despite the fact that their imagination could not come up with an idea that God could actually take what was so broken and bring life out of it, that God indeed was so powerful and so full of gracious love that He would do just that. And my friends, this word for us is so important today, for we find ourselves on the other side of Jesus' first advent. When Jesus came and obeyed all of the laws of God that we would not and could not keep, and died in our place to take our punishment, and rose again, conquering sin and death, we have experienced the beginning of a reconciled relationship with God. But it is not complete. For we who are His covenant people, we still rebel. And tragically, we live in a world which is an open warfare against God. And there is brokenness and darkness all around us. And we long for a day, a second advent, when Emmanuel will come back. But this time he won't leave. And He will refashion everything, starting with us, and make all things new. And so I say to you, the sprig on the seemingly dead stump has grown and is growing, and one day will be a mighty tree, and underneath of its leaves we will take refuge and eat from its fruit and find restoration. And so we find ourselves even today on this side of Jesus' first advent longing for a second one. The first thing I want us to see in verses 1-5 through today is that Jesus, our Emmanuel, the unlikely shoot from Jesse, will establish righteous justice in this unjust world. Let's do an exercise today. Anybody who loves Donald Trump, come over here and sit on this side of the building. You know I'm kidding. I would never make you do this, right? If any of you just got a little bit antsy, that was the reason I did that. I was talking to one of our older members recently, and I asked her, have you ever seen it worse than it is right now as far as cultural and societal tension? And she said, no, this is about the worst I've seen. Now, whether you agree with that or not, 
whether you like the president or not, whether you love his policies, whether you are happy with our government, you know that we live in a world that is full of tension. And it's not just our country, it's, it's all over the place. But if you understand human history, those who often say it's worse than it's ever been, all you have to do is look back at the course of not only Western history, but the history of the world itself, and you'll find that there have been incredibly dark days. Try being a Jewish person around 70 A.D. when the Romans came in, finally having had enough and ransacked Jerusalem. Try being an inhabitant of Jerusalem in the 8th century B.C. When, when Isaiah wrote, knowing that two kingdoms north of you and another kingdom east of you could come in at any moment and wipe you out. This cursed world, fallen and broken, will never be fully right until Jesus comes and makes it fully right. But this unlikely shoot from Jesse's seemingly decayed stump will do just that. And his first advent, he initiated it. We see in verse 2 here in Isaiah 11 that he will be marked by the Spirit of the Lord, endowed with an uncommon indwelling of the Spirit. How will He be characterized? Well, He will be characterized by wisdom and understanding, verse 2, by counsel and might, by knowledge and fear of the Lord. And furthermore, in verse 3, He will not only fear the Lord, He will delight in fearing the Lord. He won't just do it because He has to. It will exude from Him. What human that has ever lived is characterized by these perfect virtues. There is only one, and He had to come down from heaven. He could not just be a normal son of Adam and Eve. He had to be divine, and thus the virgin birth, where heaven came down to earth and gave us a real human, but a divine one, fully indwelt by the Spirit, so that He could be a perfect ruler. What will He do? He will not judge by what His eyes see or decide disputes by what His ears hear, like normal humans do who are infallible, who err, who can be persuaded to do evil things for personal gain. He will be completely objective. He will be completely virtuous. And according to verse 4, with righteousness He will judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. The least of these, those who can offer this ruler nothing, he will watch after them first. And what about the wicked? He will strike them with the rod of his mouth, and he will put down all evil, and he will be characterized consistently and forever with righteousness and faithfulness. No matter who your favorite leader has been in our country, no one has ever been like this. No one has even been close. And if you look back through the course of human history, no one, no man, no woman has ever been close. In one way or another, they've all disappointed. But Jesus, in His first advent, when He came to walk this earth with us, 
He began to show us what such a ruler might look like. And yet here, on this side of his first advent, we do not live in a culture, we do not live in a world that is characterized by this kind of rule. But deep down, we ache for it. We ache for the kind of ruler who will be perfectly righteous. But more than that, he won't just be perfectly righteous. He will have the kind of power that he can bring such righteousness to bear pervasively on the earth. When there will be no more poverty. When there will be no more brokenness. When there will be no more corruption. But we can have total confidence that with global ubiquitousness, Righteousness will reign, and we long for that day. And I say to you, despite the fact that it might seem so unlikely and so very far off, it is coming. In Matthew chapter 3, when Jesus was baptized, immediately He went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to Him, and He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, coming to rest on Him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Why could Jesus be so righteous and why will He one day return in such righteousness? Because He is indwelled by the very Spirit who was there at creation, who came at the recreation and will be there at the end to make all things new. Jesus speaks these words about Himself in Luke chapter 4. He came to Nazareth where He had been brought up. It was his custom he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. Interesting. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because He anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, the vulnerable in other words, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today the Scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In Jesus' first advent, he began to make all things new. The prophets sometimes collapse all the prophecies, the promises of God into one seeming same thing. On the screen behind me, you'll see a picture of a uh, mountain. Um, this, I believe, is Mount Democrat. There are four mountains together uh, in a portion of Colorado where we vacation sometimes that you can climb all in one circuit. And when you look at it, you just see kind of one peak. But when you get to the top, you'll see the next picture, you see tons of peaks. There are, I think, 52 14ers, mountains that are over 14,000 feet in Colorado. There are hundreds of 13ers and tons of 12ers. And it is not until you get to the top of these mountains that you see that there are distinct peaks in the range. The prophets sometimes, when you read them, you might think there is one fulfillment of a promise. But here on this end of Jesus' first advent, we have not seen all of these things come to pass. We've, we've seen salvation initiated. We've seen some of Jesus' promises come to pass, but we have not seen them all come to pass. And so we now have to get a vantage point. 
And one of the things that we do is we look back at the prophets and we compare it with the information, the revelation that we have in the New Testament is that some of Jesus' promises have been fulfilled, but not all. And that's where we are today. We are in some ways standing on a peak. We're not at the highest point because we can't see all yet. But we do find ourselves living in a tension once again between partial fulfillment and a longing for more. Which brings us to our second point in verses 6 through 9. Jesus, our Emmanuel, the unlikely shoot from Jesse, will not just establish righteous justice in this unjust world. He will furthermore restore peace to His groaning creation. These beautiful verses, verses 6 through 9, about wolves hanging out with lambs and leopards lying down with young goats and cows and bears grazing together and children leading them and children for playtime hanging out by the dwelling places of poisonous snakes. Metaphors, perhaps, but pointing us to a time when what Jesus has initiated in His first advent will find greater fulfillment. Jesus, this unlikely shoot on the seemingly decayed tree, will come another time and restore peace to His groaning creation. We know this from Genesis chapter 3. God curses humanity because of their willful rebellion, and He says to Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife because she had eaten the fruit first, had turned in rebellion against God, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. Snakes are scary things. This is why this metaphor in Isaiah 11 is so compelling. When I was a child, I would spend a good part of my summers in Kentucky on my parents, on my grandparents' tobacco farm. The best memories of my life were on that farm. But my grandmother was scared to death every time we went to visit that we would die by snake bite. We had to be careful in the creeks because water moccasins lived in the creeks. We had to be careful in the fields because rattlesnakes lived in the field. We had to be careful on the rocks we climbed because copperheads lived there. Frankly, Kentucky's a relatively dangerous place. We don't just see snakes here in this passage. We see discussions about wolves and leopards. A few years ago, I was in Kenya on a teaching trip, and we had some time at the end to do a safari, not a safari where you go harvest an animal, but where you go look at animals. And uh, we were in the eastern, the western portion of Kenya in a game preserve called the Masai Mara. And basically what you do is you get up early in the morning and you go out before breakfast, well, well before dawn, and you ride around and you watch the animals. And the main thing you're doing is you're watching them hunt each other. Uh, then you go eat breakfast and then you go do it again. This is your pattern for a few days. I remember one evening in particular, we were coming back to the lodge to have our dinner. And it was, it was dusk, it was quite dark. And as we were pulling up to the lodge, our driver stopped and he said, look, and out in front of us there was a leopard in this gravel road, and it was down on its haunches stalking these gazelles. Uh, it, was, it was striking to be there and actually see that with my own eyes. If, if we're honest, our world often feels like this. One of the things that we have to do from time to time is pose the questions uh, 
bring out the thoughts that are nagging all of us and pull them out so we can stare at them and gaze at them for a while. Even if you don't necessarily ask these questions or articulate them out loud yourself, they're, they're deep down in all of us. What can be done about a world that is full of danger? Where it seems like evil is lurking and danger is stalking. What will happen to such a world? Interestingly, back in Isaiah chapter 2, the prophet says, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that He may teach us His ways and that we may walk in His paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. There's coming a day, according to Isaiah 11 and Isaiah 2, when danger will be removed, even the threat of danger. There's coming a day when there can't be any more war. When the instruments of warfare are beaten into instruments of pruning. Even if you don't articulate out loud like I do, I'm weird. When when will it be new? When will all the promises be fulfilled? When will my anxiety go away? When will I have nothing to fear? When will all of my relationships be made whole? When will my longings be pure? When will righteousness reign and be pervasive? I was able to spend some time with George and Barbara Kelly, who are part of our church, newly so, uh, this past Thursday evening. And George was telling me on Thursday evening that today is the day that he returned from his year-long deployment to Vietnam I think back in 1968. I think that's right, George. And George confided that, and he said it was okay if I shared this, that this is a hard day for him. In some ways, it's a reminder that, that God preserved him, that God brought him home. But God did not bring all of George's friends home. Some perished on the battlefield And it's a reminder that even many years since then, that those wounds, those those scars, that scar tissue remains. But my friends, there's coming a day when, when we'll have no more pain. There's coming a day when violence will be impossible. There's coming a day when when full and total restoration comes. And we who this week celebrate the height of Advent and and Christmas tide. We aren't yet complete, are we? We long for a world that is totally and fully complete. And this is what Paul speaks of in Romans 8. For I consider that the sufferings, remember he's, he's on this side of Jesus' first advent too, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. 
For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. I'm reminded this week of how much many of us have lost in the year that has gone by. Tonight, and I mentioned this to you via email last night, tonight, a number of us will gather together at Matt and Gina White's home. Some of you know that name, some of you do not. Matt and Gina, a year ago, this very day, at around 7 p.m., lost their daughter, surprisingly and tragically, to a fight with bacterial meningitis. She was about to turn 15 this past February. Miriam was a beautiful girl, inside and out. But we are reminded that in this world where Jesus has not yet made all things new, that we are still vulnerable. And we long for an age where that will no longer be the case. And so tonight, I encourage you to come. As one of my favorite bands says, every time they hold a concert, they are seeking to tear back a little corner of the darkness. We'll try to do that together tonight. But in a sense, my friends, that's what we're doing this morning. We're not afraid to look into the darkness, as frightening, as petrifying as it is, because Jesus has already penetrated it. And one day He will come, and He will bring His light to bear, and there will be no more darkness. There will be full restoration. We long for that day. The third thing this passage teaches us in verses 10 through 16 is that Jesus, our Emmanuel, God with us, the unlikely shoot from Jesse, will bring redemption to those far from Him. He is going to do this for His people Israel. In Romans chapter 11, Paul comments on this. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware. Of this mystery, brothers, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. What will happen to rebellious Israel one day who has not trusted Christ, the promised Messiah? He will restore them graciously. But not just the Jews. He is doing this for all peoples of the earth right now. Paul comments on this in Romans 15. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with His people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol Him. And again Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. 
when Isaiah mentions in verse 12 of Isaiah 11 that Jesus, Emmanuel, the shoot from Jesse, will raise a signal for the nations. This is all peoples everywhere. He goes on to say in the remaining verses in chapter 11, he's going to take a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom, which, as you remember, are divided at this point and in hostility against one another and bring them back into union with one another. Most of us, if we've lived long enough, have faced estrangement from those that we love. I won't ask you to raise your hand. This is just rhetorical. But how many of you have lost a loved one before death? In other words, the separation you have experienced with them is not because they've died, but because you have lost relationship with them. How many of you have had dear friends turn their backs on you and to this day that severance, that schism has not been healed? Is there anything more painful than being cut off from those that you love? But that's why God sent Emmanuel. God sent Emmanuel to come down and heal the schism between us and Him. And He came down as Emmanuel to heal the schisms among each other. One of the things that I look forward to most in the second advent of Jesus is that I will have no more separation from those that I have lost. Do you feel that today? My friends, there is coming a day when Jesus, God with us, will come and never leave. And this promise that has come out of brokenness and ruin and decay will establish righteousness and justice in this unjust world. He will restore peace to a groaning creation And He will bring redemption to those who are far from Him and, may I add, far from one another. Let's look, if you don't mind, briefly at Revelation 21 and 22. This is why Rich read these verses for us earlier. In Revelation 21, John says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be His people, and God Himself will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither there shall be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Lord Jesus Christ has come in this first advent to initiate that process. And even now, He is making all things new, and one day He will return and never leave, and all things will be made new. And in chapter 22, verse 1, when the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, Yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. That's coming. It's not here yet. We, in some ways, still just see one mountain range. But, but we've gotten a better vantage point than Isaiah had. And there's coming a day when there'll be an even better vantage point. And this log 
as you'll see the picture again behind me, will not just have a sprig of life, it will be a full tree of life, and healing will come for all who trust Jesus. So how do we respond to this? First, believe. If you have not yet placed your faith in the one who came to heal you, who came to restore you to God, He died for you to take your punishment, and He he rose again to conquer anything that would threaten you. Trust Him today. For those who have already trusted Jesus, I call you to take heart. We can be optimistic in this world full of cynicism. We can be realistic and admit the darkness, admit the brokenness, but let us take heart. Jesus is making all things new. Encourage one another with these words when you sense the brokenness, when you, when you feel it together. Live in such proximity with one another that you have the latitude and ability to speak words of encouragement when your brother or sister has a drooping head. And lastly, share this good news of God our Emmanuel, the unlikely shoot from Jesse, who can alone make you and your neighbor, and the world new. We are not the hope of the world. Jesus alone is. But we have the privilege and responsibility of taking this good news and making it known. May God in His infinite mercy heal us, and may He heal our community and our world. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, now I pray that by Your Spirit, you will take these words and you will root them deeply within our minds and our hearts that we will understand them and we will embrace them. Give hope to the hopeless, life to the lifeless, encouragement to the faint-hearted, courage to the cowardly, and do all those things in our minds and hearts which each of us desperately need. Heal us continually, we pray. In your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.